Welcome to What's the Tea with Ministry, where we spill the tea on the Jesuit and Mercy mission at the University of Detroit Mercy. Bringing you mission-centered conversation through storytelling, reflection, and community connection all over a cup of tea. Hosted by University Ministry and a student co-host. That's us. I'm Anna Lawler, University Minister. And I'm Margot Yu, your student co-host. Today, we're going to be talking with Father Gilbert Sangera, Associate Professor of Architecture and Community Development and the outgoing superior of the Jesuit community at Lansing Riley here on the Detroit Mercy Campus. In addition to teaching on our campus, Father Gilbert leads an award-winning National Liturgical Space Consulting Service, which bridges high design and sacred space. He has helped to design many of the sacred spaces on our campus, including the Holy Spirit Chapel and the Islamic Prayer Room in the Student Union. Father Gilbert is a beloved member of our community who will be moving on to a new assignment. But before he leaves us, we wanted to take the time to speak with him about St. Ignatius and his experience with the Jesuits. So without further ado, let's talk with Father Gilbert. Welcome, Father Gilbert. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are excited to have you today. So our podcast is newer, and we're really excited about what it's becoming and what it could be in the future. Uh, One of the things that we are doing with all of our guests, and you are joining us in this today, is we're sharing this time together in conversation over a cup of tea. And so we offered you a cup of tea today, and we were just wondering, what tea are you drinking? I'm doing the lemon lift. A lovely lemon lift. Margo, what about yourself? The blueberry pomegranate is really tasty and smells great. And I went with just a classic mint tea for myself. So we're going to be talking with Father Gilbert today a little bit about St. Ignatius, who he is, why is he important, what has he done to make our university what it is today in many ways, what is his legacy. So we want to start, Father Gilbert, by just asking you who St. Ignatius is. Well, uh, he was a a fairly modern-day saint in the sense of a 2,000-year tradition. He's um, in the late 1400s. He kind of emerges on the scene. Uh, a soldier saint, and that's the part that I think is really, for me, the most significant, because he um, is really dealing with this sense of where his deepest desires are. Um, Originally, he was kind of trained as a courtier, so working in the courts of uh, the royal courts of Spain, as um, um, so just aware of life in general, maybe in a way that other saints um, don't always engage in. They tend to kind of remove themselves from the world. But for Ignatius, I think that ability to kind of see God in all things kind of comes from those early experiences of kind of being trained to be uh, available to the political leaders of the time. And then eventually as a soldier, he wasn't a great soldier. I mean, he lost a battle, and that's where he gets injured, and that ends his career. But he knows the spirit of what it means to be a soldier, and I think that becomes significant because people see him as a great follower. And so when he's a student at the University of Paris, um, these students are just um, enamored by him. He's got a charismatic personality. He um, is a man on mission. He kind of knows there's something greater that's going on here, and he's not fearful of that. And so... Um, in a nutshell, that's who he is. Okay. Why do you think he's important to us at Detroit Mercy? Well, 
one of the things that I've always been impressed by, I'm originally from uh, Los Angeles area, and I came to work in the architecture school here. But the one thing I've grown to love, especially about Detroit, is it's a maker's culture. So it's this culture that understands the significance of what it means to create um, beautiful objects, whether it's the automobile, cultural objects such as um, music uh, in all of its different forms from jazz to Motown to rap to um, electronic music. Um, so it's got this kind of very creative understanding uh, that has an impact on American culture. And I think when you've got something like that, you become leaders. And um, one of the things that I've always felt about Detroit is that sometimes I don't think it realizes how powerful it is on the American imagination. And Ignatius being that kind of soldier saint, you know, I think sees that ability to um, kind of grow something and continue to grow it greater. And so ever since 1877, when the Jesuits started then the University of Detroit, there's always, I think, been this sense that um, we can do almost anything our imagination sets its mind to. And again, that for me is kind of Ignatius in a nutshell. It's just like he knows what he needs to do. So that would be, I would say, the significance that way. I'm sure others have different ways of seeing it, but for me, I always just enjoy that. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I love, I, as someone who's also not a fellow uh, native of Detroit, a, a transplant, as you, as you might say, mm -hmm. um, I've really come to love the city in a lot of ways. And I think our presence here is so important as the University of Detroit Mercy. And I think what St. Ignatius's legacy really could be for us in this space is that spirit that you were talking about, the commitment, the hard work ethic, and also just a desire to be where people are and amidst the energy of, of a city and the energy um, and spirit of its people. So that kind of leads into another question. So I mentioned the word legacy. Um, we know that there are 27 amazing Jesuit higher ed institutions here in the United States. What makes it special uh, to be Detroit Mercy? And what do you think the legacy of Detroit Mercy means to the Jesuit world? That's kind of an interesting question. Um, and many people may not know this, but Detroit Mercy was actually one of the largest Jesuit universities in the country uh, back in the 40s, 50s, and probably early 60s. Um, and so it kind of led the nation in many ways in different things, including athletics. You know, when we had the football team, you know, we were fairly good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so as the downsizing was occurring, um, I think we had to constantly keep recalibrating what does it mean to be a Jesuit university in a city like Detroit, mm -hmm. so where economic disparity was probably the highest um, yeah. disparity rates in the country, poverty, racial tensions, um, all of those things, how do we carve a new path? So not just trying to be another Georgetown or Boston College, which would be the leading ones today, but to really ask the question, what does the community need and how do we provide that um, as students who are gonna become the future leaders of this great area? Um, so that flexibility and that kind of uh, ability to, to pivot as one needs, uh, I think really has inspired other institutions uh, that are now starting to see downsizing in their own institutions mm -hmm. and are struggling and stuff. And uh, they see that, uh, you know, Detroit Mercy 
was very creative in this, you know, and especially the consolidation with the Sisters of Mercy. They too were experiencing a downturn in their uh, population and then combining the two, you just had this kind of wonderful connection. Normally when Jesuits uh, merge with another institution, it's usually a, basically a friendly takeover, maybe not so friendly, but um, because we tend to be seen as kind of the power group. Um, but in, uh, in this reality, uh, it was a true consolidation. Um, everything from the president of the University of Detroit, uh, Father Mitchell, uh, literally stepped down so that Sister Maureen Fay, who was president of Mercy, would be the new president of the combined consolidated university. All of that just lent itself to this really kind of movement of a joining of spirits, which again, I think helps pave the way for other institutions. Nice. I have a couple of questions about the merging of Mercy and Jesuit later on. Follow-up questions, of course. Okay. But um, I just want to ask, how has Ignatius and his spirituality impacted or influenced your life? Um, I like the fact that, again, I go back to this notion of a soldier saint, right? Um, I grew up in a Franciscan parish, so St. Francis was larger than life. But, you know, he's so friendly, and maybe, <laughs> you know, he was always talking about peace, and, you know, as a teenager, I'm thinking, I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that kind of a peaceful person and stuff like that. And when I started to read about Ignatius and the tensions and the battles and in kind of his interior kind of aspects, I found that I resonated a lot more with him. Um, so I found in my personal life, uh, just the ability, um, uh, again, to uh, uh, resonate with Ignatius in a way that I didn't with Francis or the other saints. Mm -hmm. um, and I met uh, a lot of Jesuits, which I think is important. So we use the term Ignatian when we're talking about things of St. Ignatius, and the biggest is the spiritual exercises, and I'm sure other guests will talk about that. That's mm -hmm. probably his greatest gift to the church. Which I find, again, uh, it's incredibly influential. But to me, it's a living tradition when you are a Jesuit because you're now taking what Ignatius's insights are and bringing it into the world today. So the Jesuits who I met uh, were dealing a lot with social justice issues, faith issues, beauty. I mean, there were Jesuit artists and uh, composers and architects. Uh, there were Jesuits in the sciences. Uh, so uh, they were never afraid uh, to see the world and to embrace the world and then to help others uh, recognize the divine that's part of their search for their wisdom, right? So if you're a scientist and you're trying to uncover what's going on in, in this what we call the world, it becomes this really fascinating endeavor, but it's very spiritual. Because the seeking of wisdom in all religious traditions is part of that sacred quest. Um, and I think for Ignatius, he was always open to that. There wasn't any fear about embracing what's going on in the, in the real world as part of one's spiritual quest. Do you happen to have like a favorite Ignatius story? Well, I do. I do. So they said that Ignatius, when, um, you know, he wanted to go out and conquer the world, right? But he ends up having to become the first father general, which is the leader of the Jesuits. 
So he becomes an administrator in Rome, and he has to literally recalibrate all those great aspirations, and he's sending his best friends to all parts of the world because this was a time that in Europe they were doing these explorations of the New World. So Francis um, Xavier, one of his closest friends, is sent off to um, India before the Society of Jesus is even formed. And he literally has to say goodbye knowing he'll probably never see him again. But he's also, I think, the one who really wants to be on that ship exploring these new cultures, exploring these new worlds, you know, and doing all of that. But he's stuck back at the office, right? So at night, he would climb up, they say, to the roof of uh, his office, um, and he would just stare at the stars. And um, to me, I just find this very visual, right? So his, his trajectory is towards the heavens, and part of it is he's realizing now his closest friends are now all around the world and doing incredible things. So he's like looking up, recognizing that, and then he has to reset his gaze on the city of Rome and the realities of what's happening um, in this place. And for Jesuits, that's the reality. We have these grand gestures of being out doing wonderful things and then setting our sight on what's happening here in the immediacy and then doing profound things. And I just find that really consoling. I think even as superior, because you know, one of the roles I call being a superior is like being a dorm mother to, <laughs> to these Jesuits. Yeah. And trust me, it's a handful at times because they are these people who do incredible things. You know, sometimes it's not safe. Sometimes it's you know, um, puts them in danger, or even potentially puts the society in danger by taking certain stances and trying to work with them and, and praying and discerning, but I don't feel like I have the freedom like I used to when I wasn't the superior to be able to do certain yeah. things or say th certain things. And uh, so right now, that's probably the story that resonates the most with me. That's beautiful. I love that. So you mentioned earlier uh, about the unique situation that we have here at Detroit Mercy as being a school that has two charisms. Mm -hmm the Jesuits and the Sisters of Mercy, something that I deeply love and, and have come to learn so much more about um, as a person who's only ever worked at Jesuit institutions prior to coming here. Um, I've never dealt with the two charisms component of potentially working in a higher ed space that has two beautiful spiritualities. Um, I want to ask for you, what is it like to hold those two spiritualities, especially as a Jesuit priest? Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's complicated, I'll say, because part of me as a Jesuit has to kind of also help articulate the Jesuit side of things. And understanding Jesuits, I think, is different than understanding mercies. Um, and I don't know if it's a male-female thing or the era that Catherine McCauley is working in, mm -hmm. where I don't know um, if education like how education is formed and developed and, and brought forth to students is as critical as this idea of access to education. Um, I mean, she's bold and brave, you know, in many respects like Ignatius, right? Almost a soldier character who just tells the people in her neighborhood in this very wealthy part of um, Dublin, 
these women are going to be trained and they're going to be educated and you just need to deal with it, <laughs> you know. And I love that about her, you know. Um, but, but what the ed- educational pedagogical approach for them I think is just not as clearly defined. Um, so then the charism kind of goes back to the larger sense of like who is she and then what have the mercies done with that as the generations. And then there really is a lot of um, commonality, I think. Again, they do quite a bit of um, areas of social justice. Their focus tends to be a bit more in the health fields. And so that notion of healing society, uh, both from a physical uh, reality, um, which can be very brutal, and they do incredible work all around the world with that, um, but also, I think, in the spiritual side, too, um, of trying to help people who have suffered or are going through difficult experiences and are able to be kind of um, a really safe space for, for them. Um, I find my students resonate easier with Catherine than they do with Ignatius. And I think part of it is Ignatius is a bit more of a mystic, you know, because of Mm -hmm. his spiritual exercises and all that. But Catherine is very straightforward, you know, and it's very uh, kind of um, can do, will do, you know, just don't stand in my way kind of -hmm. um, of a, a personality. And I think they really enjoy that. I often will give a class assignment of like rethinking the campus um, student center and what would you do to, to make sure that people recognize a, a Jesuit and a mercy identity in here. So on the Ignatius side, they might think of kind of the world view, looking out into the world, um, framing views and being strategic like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the mercy, it becomes more complicated physically, because you know, again, it's about access. So it's really about welcoming. And that's a very different kind of, uh, not so much different than I guess the judgments, but, but that emphasis on welcoming becomes significant. So that, um, you know, how we even talk now about belonging, that mm-hmm. it's not just about DEI, but it's really about belonging. Right. That it's, you know, it's not just respecting diversity, but knowing that you're welcome here. And I, I find that the students do it na- quite naturally, um, but tensions rise every now and then. And I think if we can refocus ourselves back to that, it becomes important. Mm-hmm. How can our community find commonality between the Jesuit and Mercy missions? And how, like, how do we hold them as a distinct as well? So, like, how do we keep them, how do we hold that image together? But then... Yeah, that's a great question. Because, um, again, there's a lot that's shared between the two. Um, and there's subtle nuancing. And I think it's something that we'll discover as we continue... Uh, exploring that language. Um, uh, Catherine uh, Prinsalan-Monlimos, who was the former mission integration officer, um, began those kinds of conversations. And um, I'm excited to see how that continues and develops. And I'm sure Charles Aduque, the new uh, mission integration officer, will continue in that route, just kind of asking. Um, he was raised by the Mercies early on in his education, and then he was a Jesuit for several years, so he also went through formation as a Jesuit. So 
he kind of has that keen awareness of these two kind of motions. And coming from Kenya, he's um, got that international understanding of what that means. So uh, given our diverse population, uh, I think that really offers us a chance to define it. And I think people are looking at us to see what that means, even though you know, the consolidation is, what is it now, 25, 30 years, well, 1990, I think. Yeah, 33 years old. Yeah. So, you know, again, I think these things slowly emerge and develop and percolate up. But I think welcoming uh, is maybe one of those ones, too, that um, defines the mercies a little clearer. And then with Ignatius, it's really about thinking of the creative mind and helping develop that, whether that's through the study of poetry or literature, or the analytics of science, or of um, uh, geometry, or uh, the focus on beauty. You know, all of those kind of come from a, a long tradition that the Jesuits had implemented in this early days of a university. Um, the other part, too, was, you know, when the university started, they asked Ignatius, well, what does it mean to be a Jesuit university? And one of the things I always really am drawn by is this idea of what it means to be the good citizen mm -hmm. and recognizing that your responsibility has to kind of unfold and develop um, and you're called as a leader in the community. So all of our students um, really have to grow into that and it's a complex world right now where especially in politics, no one trusts anyone anymore. Mm -hmm. So how do we help create trust in political life because otherwise we're going to just collapse the society you know so all of those kinds of ventures i think will help as we define what it means to be here on the campus but those are kind of key points that i think both charisms have that are unique and uh, that are complementary to one another yeah. i think one of the things i really enjoy um, and think about when i think about Detroit Mercy, when I think about the Sisters of Mercy and the Jesuits, is I, I think about the, the concept or the, the word resiliency. Hmm. I, think, I think of Catherine as being someone who is really resilient in mm -hmm. what she wanted and what she was hoping to accomplish in the work as the Sisters of Mercy were first established. Yeah. I think of that same energy and spirit as being true in Ignatius. And I think for us, uh, located in Detroit, I think that is the spirit of Detroit, is this this level of resiliency that we we have. Um, I say we because I'm, I'm going to include myself now uh, in the Detroit. I've been Detroit here for two now. years. <laughs> so I'm going to include myself now. And I, I think the spirit of resiliency of Detroit and Detroit Mercy is something that's really beautiful. And I think, for me, the spirit of Catherine and Ignatius fuels that um, yeah. in my understanding of of our university and institution and also being in the city. Yeah, I'd say learning as a student at least who's had to take a lot of, not a lot of, but a good amount of classes where I did have to learn the difference between, you know, being a Mercy or just Mercy and Jesuit and learn more about who these, who Catherine McCauley and Ignatius were. I'd say it has most definitely impacted me in a very good way personality-wise, what I want to do in the future, um, how I carry myself now. Mm -hmm. um, even spiritual-wise, like spiritual I think that coming to a school here kind of shaped who I really want to be and how I want to be that person um, post-undergrad or just in the future as I become. 
a doctor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I will say, like, this is kind of what Detroit needs. A set of a school just and who a school that's able to teach the importance of sticking up for what's right. And yeah. and the way they stick up for it, a little harmless, but it's like, go ahead. But um, yeah, I think that students that do go come here it doesn't even matter the faith. I think that the way that you guys um, carry yourselves on campus and teach us on campus does have a very big impact, especially on me. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. So one of my uh, last questions for this portion of our conversation is, what's a lesson from St. Ignatius that has helped to transform your life? Well, I suppose one of them, um, you know, again, Ignatius um, saw God in all things. That's kind of a phrase that we throw around all the time. But I, um, you know, my background before I entered the Jesuits was in architecture, and it was a profession I loved doing. I um, just enjoyed designing and creating buildings, thinking of how materials come together, thinking about the impact those those buildings have on larger society and the owners of the building and the users of the building, all of those kinds of issues I just find incredibly animating. And I remember when I entered the Jesuits, you you have to kind of enter with the mindset that you surrender everything, right? And that's the great sushi pay, you know, mm-hmm. um, I surrender my will, my understanding. Um, my will, my understanding, what's the other part? <laughs> will, understanding. As someone who's not a Jesuit, I haven't memorized it. (laughs) (laughs) As a Jesuit, I don't know it. (laughs) But uh, especially will and understanding. And I was fine with not going back into architecture at all. And then, oddly enough, they asked me to comment on a building that the Jesuits were creating at our headquarters. And this was in Los Gatos, California. And it was kind of fun to go back into it. And, And the Jesuits said, well, you know, you're, you clearly know what you're talking about, and you understand it, so why don't you use your architecture as part of your life as a Jesuit? So um, that was really informative to me, that um, you always have to be willing to surrender it, but if there's something that you are good at, then continue to do that, because that can be used for the greater glory of God, for the sense of... Uh, bringing about something great in the world. And I came to Detroit Mercy because of the design center that was mm-hmm. here at the Art School of Architecture. It was started by the dean at the time, but um, it was led by a Jesuit, Terry Curry. And uh, he was doing really creative work, um, more in the sense of true architecture and buildings and spaces and creating, um, fabricating different items for various buildings and stuff. And then um, that's been transformed under the uh, under um, Dan Patera when he was the director, focusing on community engagement and getting uh, community members to dream. Um, and all of that, that whole journey, I find, is very Ignatian. You know, it's like, okay, this is what the community needs now, and so how do we pivot? How do we uh, still bring this in there? So, um, you know, for Ignatius, he was never fearful of that kind of thinking, and so beauty comes in some just incredibly creative ways, and there's never a fear of that. Um, And so I always find that exciting. 
Um, I'll share a little story, and then mm -hmm. you can edit it out if you need to. <laughs> but uh, I was working on um, the new Jesuit residence for Fairfield University in Connecticut. And um, the designers were incredible. They were just, they were both faculty members at Yale and other prestigious institutions, and they created an incredible building design, and the Jesuits loved it, right? So uh, we go through, we create it and all of that, and then there's a website called Good Jesuit, Bad Jesuit, and all of a sudden, there's a critique of the new residence at Fairfield under the category Bad Jesuit. Oh, no. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I'm like looking at this thing. I'm like, they don't understand, you know, what's going on here because this is designed to help the university rethink what it means to be sustainable. So all of these sustainable things from geothermal heating and cooling to green roofs to uh, passive solar approaches are all embedded in this. And in that cost extra money to do, and the Jesuits flipped the bill for that. They said, "We, this is important to us, mm -hmm. we will do this. And um, it was as if, because it was such a beautiful building, very contemporary, but very beautiful, they were knocking it as a, a thing saying, well, that's just not Jesuit. You know, it should be, you know, not a hovel, but it should be really, you know, kind of like, <laughs> a bit more on the simple side. And that's the question, you know, in architecture, what do you do? You know, do you help create something that other institutions then could follow and then again help the planet and do all the things you want to do? Or, you know, is it just about creating an uninspiring kind of space, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I just found it interesting, but it was interesting to be tagged as a bad Jesuit in the middle of this, <laughs> this whole kind of thing. But I thought, you know, that's what Jesuits do. We love to critique. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're never always going to end up on the right side, the wrong side of a debate. But it's important that we ask these kinds of questions. So. Yeah. And I know I didn't prep you for this question, so you can, you can get mad at me later about it. Um, but just about your experience of helping with the sacred spaces on our campus. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear just what that process was like for you and a little bit about how the mission influenced those spaces. Ah, okay. Well, um, really the, the space that was in the student union, the uh, Holy Spirit Chapel, that came about because a donor really wanted to provide um, a spiritual space on the campus. And his focus was a bit more on the Catholic side. Uh, Anita Klug, the director of university ministry, um, was able to convince him that um, the other Christian denominations needed a space because the chapel of St. Ignatius is a truly Catholic space, very mm -hmm. contemporary, beautiful, but, you know, it's a large crucifix that's at one end of the building, you know. And, um, and so it has meaning for Catholics, but not necessarily for a lot of the faith traditions that come here in the Christian uh, sense. So it's an ecumenical space. And so we had these really wonderful conversations with different students about, well, what does this space need to be? And um, then also thinking, you know, the way that we engage in word, um, especially with texting, are kind of short phrases. And so this idea of using smaller quotes to help people launch into their prayer became part of that. Um, 
the notion of a labyrinth, and that's kind of graphically what you see happening on the walls. These kinds of uh, spaces that are meant to turn you in on yourself becomes another kind of iconic type of moment. Um, the way that um, the cross is placed outside of the, the space to help expand a sense of space. And then you'll see the ceiling kind of rises to the window so you can feel protected in um, a quieter, more intimate space, but it's meant to, again, kind of broadcast this out into the larger world. Um, so it, it was kind of just um, in conversations with the different folks, and then we had a very creative design team out of Milwaukee who I had worked with on several other projects. We were on a very tight timeline, and they're used to doing these kinds of fabricated environments mm -hmm quickly. And so uh, we brought them in and they were able to really take some of those early concepts and then create this beautiful design out of it. Um, the Muslim prayer space, uh, not so much because a lot of it had already been planned. Mm -hmm. So then it was going back to the Muslim students and I don't know who did the initial planning on it, but it really was a bit awkward in separating the men and women to do two separate spaces where that's not really needed. They, they worship um, men in front, women towards the back, and providing an entry point that allowed people to move easily into one without passing through the other was really about the only implement that we were able to do other than the Qibla wall, mm -hmm. which has reference to the prayer wall in that Holy Spirit Chapel, and then eventually we'll have a pattern replicated into the St. Ignatius Chapel, and then there's a small library space that also uh, is utilizing a similar type of pattern, though it's a little bit different. Beautiful. Nice. Yeah, and we're thankful that you contributed so much to those really beautiful spaces for our students. Uh, I know I utilize it frequently for small programs, uh, the Holy Spirit Chapel, right. that is. I'm glad um, it's getting used. Yeah, it's definitely getting <laughs> yeah. used. And oh, certainly the prayer wall in particular is something that I think students definitely take advantage of. Um, I often am in there. I know our staff in the university ministry office collects them every so often and, and prays with them during our staff meetings. So if students oh, don't know that, uh, always know that we're thinking about you and your prayers that you put in the wall. And part of it, I think, is the need for a tactile experience, mm -hmm. you know. So even just inserting a small prayer into that wall becomes really a kind of a profound moment of letting go, you know. Um, so, yeah, thank you. So to finish up, we like to ask all of our guests to answer these two questions. And the first one is, what is your favorite part of the mission? Um, so I keep thinking, is it mission statement or? It could be mission statement. It could be your personal mission, your mission journey. Wow. Whatever you yeah. want it it's to like be. I think <laughs> when we when we say yeah. mission, I think what we're talking about is certainly the mission statement is in that. Yeah. Um, but the larger mission of the university, our, the larger identity as a Jesuit mercy institution, how are we paying attention and being cognizant of what the larger mission is. I know we're constantly in developing new language for it and evaluating right, it as right. we always should. Um, but when you think about, when we say mission at the University of Detroit Mercy, what comes to mind um, and what about what comes to mind is your favorite? 
Um, I'll say two things. One is we clearly identify ourselves as a university, which I think is critical because we're not a parish, we're not a hospital, we're not, you know, um, anything other than a place where wisdom is constantly being searched for. And the other part is um, that Detroit uh, features profoundly in the mission statement that our context is Detroit. And again, it goes back to that image of, of Ignatius on the roof, thinking larger global issues, but then resetting his gaze towards being planted in a city. Mm-hmm. And what, what does it mean to be in that? And you see that um, all the way through the various academic programs uh, and the service programs and everything else is to help understand that. But more importantly, to recognize that a lot of the wisdom figures that we rely on are people in the community. That this isn't about just serving the community, it's about solidarity with the community and learning there, you used the word resilience, which is what I would say Detroit, you know, is boundless in, you know. Mm-hmm. And that becomes critical for our students, I think, to gain hope. Um, sometimes institutions, like I came, went to a public university, so education was always kind of thought of in a more global sense, or a, I wouldn't even call it global, but it was like science for science sake, or engineering for engineering's sake and all that, but there was no context to it. And here, that context takes on um, very apparent presence, and I think that becomes critical. And then the second question is, what motivates you to live the mission? Well, my title is a Jesuit. <laughs> there you go. The simple answer. The simple answer. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, I gave my life in some respects to being a Jesuit, and uh, I'm always profoundly moved. Graduation is always kind of an emotional high for me. Um, watching, especially first-generation students, I'm first-generation, and just seeing the excitement on families' faces, you know, as their child is going through and graduating and um, ready to launch out into the world and seeing the students who I remember as freshmen, you know, asking fairly simple questions now to asking these complex questions about the future and the realities. I just find that ever, ever um, grace-filled. And so I'm always just enamored by that. So now it's time for our favorite portion of the interview. Oh, God. <laughs> the lightning round. The lightning round, okay. Uh, So we're going to do this lightning round. These Uh are quick answers. Um, Don't need long explanations. Barely any explanations is fine, too. Um, This is just the first thing that comes to mind when we give you these prompts. Margo and I are going to go back and forth. Okay. um, And you can just answer whatever comes to mind the quickest. So I'm going to start you off and ask, sweet or salty? Sweet. Always sweet. (laughs) What was your first job? An ice cream scooper at Baskin Robbins. I love it. If you could learn a new language, what would you choose? Malayalam, which would be the language of my mother's tongue, and South India in the Kerala nice. region. What is your favorite movie? That's the stumper. Silence of the Lambs, oddly enough, is a favorite movie. Um, the other one is, oh God, let me think of the name of it. 
It's the one with Audrey Hepburn. It's an old one. Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's? No, no. Um, the Lion in Winter. Oh, okay. I don't yeah. know that one. Yeah. The Power of Invisibility or The Power of Super Strength? Invisibility. Okay. Current favorite song? Oh, God. Again, anything before the 17th century is a little hard for me to identify. <laughs> Which I find hilarious. Gregorian chant? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Beethoven was just a genius. Now, um, God, let me think. I don't know. <laughs> Top two. That's even worse. <laughs> it's like, I can't even think of I one. I listen to NPR. <laughs> okay, that's fair. The NPR uh, jingle? Is that what yeah. it's going to be? Okay. We'll take that. <laughs> Who is your hero? Sandy Dacious of Loyola. Okay. What's your favorite word? <laughs> God. Where did you come up with these? <laughs> Mine is Boomskis. When you're telling a story, it's like, so Boomskis. This is what happened yesterday, and then when you want to transition, so Boomskis. <laughs> I'll have to double check that that's in the dictionary. It's not. <laughs> it's a word. It doesn't have to be a legal word. God. Oh, I don't even know. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Maybe a <old> Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite line from scripture? Can you hand me a Bible? <laughs> It doesn't have to be memorized. It can be the paraphrased version. Oh, the paraphrased version. Yeah. Okay. We're not, we're, we're not making you recite it. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. Okay. It's I thirst. I like it. Uh, what saint would you like to talk to if you could? And you can't say St. Ignatius. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Other than St. Ignatius. Yeah. Other than St. Ignatius. Um... Uh, I would say uh, he's a very modern saint, and that's Oscar Romero. Okay. And actually, Retiro Grande, both of them. Okay. What is your favorite holiday? Mm, Thanksgiving. It's a okay. good one. Yeah. And then the last question is, what's the best advice you ever received? To fake it. <laughs> Should I go into a story on that? Go for okay. it. So right before my ordination, uh, I'm on retreat, and I am panicking that I will never remember any of the prayers during Mass. I'll never know what to say to somebody who's in grief and all of this. And my spiritual director just looked up after I'm kind of panicked in this mode, and he goes, you just fake it, and eventually you become it. And it goes, that's exactly how teachers do it. That's how parents do it. That's frankly how priests have to do it. You just start acting like one and you are graced into the role. Wonderful. Well, Father Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you and, and sharing conversation and a cup of tea with you. Thank you, and thank you for this project. I bid you a wonderful time as you continue this on, and I will be looking at it from the West Coast. Thanks so much. So that was a really wonderful conversation we had with Father Gilbert. I think in particular, I was really drawn to his story about St. Ignatius being on the rooftop of his office in Rome and looking up at the sky and thinking about like the vastness of the world and also the vast spaces where all of the Jesuits were being sent. 
and then him refocusing his gaze on Rome and where he was in the present. Yeah, I think it amplifies the significance of having a rooftop to be on top of to think because being able to be in that space alone where you can produce these kind of thoughts and and, and visions that you want to have for the world is very significant. I mean, think about Jesus. He was on top of the mountain, hill, top of the cave, whatever it was, but Either way, he still needed that kind of space to be alone and to produce those thoughts, to envision those thoughts and kind of like plan out how he wants to carry out that. And I think that as people who are always on the go, like, say, Ignatius or even Jesus, that private time, that quiet space is so uh, a dire need. So this is my message to everyone right now to go and get you a nice little rooftop on the top of your house. Put a little chair there. Make sure you have the stars going. If you don't have the stars going, get a little water thingy, the little the sound thingies that create the little silence with the crickets. And just think. Just think. And maybe for students who aren't thinking about their own personal rooftops, of course, we can always use the spaces that Father Gilbert has worked on, whether you're going to be in the ecumenical chapel, which is our Holy Spirit chapel in the student union, if you want to be in St. Ignatius chapel in commerce and finance, if you want to just sit outside um, or even go into the Islamic prayer room or the multi-faith prayer space, be sure to check out those spaces as a place to pause But don't forget the second part of the story of redirecting that focus back on the present and where you are. That's the message we want to leave you with today. You've been listening to What's the Tea with Ministry. If you enjoy listening to us today, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, be sure to follow us on social media at UDM underscore ministry. Or check us out at What's the Tea with Ministry podcast on the Detroit Mercy website. Thank you to our guest, Father Gilbert, for being in conversation with us today. Thank you also to all of those who have made this podcast possible, especially the Communication Studies Department, our sound engineer, Michael Jason, Marketing and Communications, and the whole Detroit Mercy community. We look forward to sharing more of the mission with you next time. See you later. Hasta la vista.